You're listening to WPVMLP in Asheville, and it's the Dirty Spoon Radio Hour. I'm Katherine Campbell. Jonathan Ammons is away this month, so I'm your solo host for our 31st Radio Hour. And this is Circuit de Yeux. in Western North Carolina, my idea of Asian food was the Americanized buffet I attended as a special treat twice a year in the next town over from my own. In Hayesville, we didn't have international cuisines carved out by origin and culture, just heated pan after heated pan of chicken dripping in orange sauce or coated in sesame seeds, thick, greasy egg rolls, everything salt and sugar to appease our Southern acclimated taste buds. 
Most of my friends didn't even want to learn how to pronounce dishes. They would point to the image of the entree they wanted or hit the buffet, refilling their sweet tea, gravitating toward the most colorful sauces, steering clear of sauteed vegetables. We were given no story behind the food we ate. We rarely saw the faces who made our meals. As I grew older and branched out to other parts of the country, I stumbled upon new tastes in little corner restaurants and strip mall gems, tastes that redefined what Asian cuisine could mean for me. Korean kimchi, Sri Lankan curries, Japanese sashimi, pho, biryani, tandoori, hot pot. When you discover a new cuisine, meet the people behind it, and learn more about the culture, you realize that life in America wouldn't be nearly as beautiful without these stories, without these foods. The thrill of new tastes can be experienced even in New York City. DC-based writer Jeremy Fredericks followed the opening of a little pop-up, positioned to become one of the first Singaporean restaurants in the city. He met with owner Amy Prike to learn firsthand the story behind Native Noodles. On the wall of the newly opened restaurant Native Noodles, Singapore is written in big, gold Chinese characters. After that, your eyes are drawn to the posters showcasing the city. Your taste buds are drawn to the dishes inspired by the Southeast Asian country. And that's the way Singapore-born owner Amy Prike wants it. She went from the financial field to opening a restaurant, with time spent at a food stand and cooking for her country's prime minister. In 2017, I was in my corporate job. I was in management consulting. And it was fine and interesting, but I didn't see myself climbing that ladder, Prike said. I decided to think about what I actually wanted to do with my life. I realized the thing I was spending most of my time on was the food world. Prike was researching recipes, cooking, and keeping tabs in the industry in her spare time, but felt that she was missing something. One of my favorite things in my life is bringing people together through food, Prike said. And so, I thought, it's kind of now or never. I should just try and give it a shot, if I want to open a restaurant. She decided to leave her job and enrolled at Columbia Business School, where she earned her MBA in 2019. Prike said that, unlike U.S. citizens who can leave their job and open a restaurant at free will, her visa didn't allow her to do so. That's when she wrote an admissions essay and applied to get her MBA. I was like, it's so unlikely I'm going to get in because who writes their MBA admission essay on opening a restaurant, right? It's not a very common path, she said. But I actually got in and took it as a sign I should go for it. At Columbia, she enrolled in a class in food entrepreneurship that gave her the skills to start her own business. She rented a stand selling Singaporean food at the Queen's Night Market in the spring of 2019. It was a hit, and even got written up in a piece in the New York Post. It was my way of testing the minimum viable product, and people responded really well to it, so it gave me the confidence to move forward with finding a space for a brick-and-mortar location, Prike said. After ending her run at the market, Prike continued to find success. She cooked for the Singaporean consulate in New York when the Prime Minister of Singapore, Lee Zian Lung, visited in 2019. She also began to search for a location to open her restaurant. She found a spot in the Washington Heights neighborhood of New York, near New York Presbyterian Hospital and Columbia's Medical School. When she signed a lease in May 2020, her landlord gave her nine months rent-free, meaning she didn't have to pay a dime until the February 2021 opening. I was able to negotiate with the landlord to get a really good period of time as a buffer, Prike said. I really had time to build out the restaurant slowly, kind of take my time, learn the trends of the neighborhood. She began to convert Singapore's classics into a more American-style cuisine. I have to cater to my immediate audience, which is the neighborhood of Washington Heights, Prike said. I know that a lot of them 
haven't had Singaporean food before, so I really wanted to make a menu that was friendly and that I could understand that would bring our flavors from Singapore, but in a way that wasn't too unfamiliar. She worked with family friend James Aw, a chef in Singapore whose recipes she used at the market, to expand her menu when she returned to her homeland last September. She thought it would be a good opportunity to work hands-on with the chef. At the Queen's Night Market, she was only able to sell a few items at a time. With her restaurant, she had to expand the menu to include more than a dozen dishes, from crispy popcorn chicken to wok-fried noodles. A lot of our recipes that we had tested at the Queen's Night Market were actually from him, that we tweaked for the New York Market, Preg said. And so I was able to do that while I was home in September, which was very helpful because it was directly before opening, and so it gave me the confidence to work in a commercial kitchen. She also worked with Josh Medina, a chef at a Hawaiian restaurant, whom she met at the market. Preg calls Medina a mentor and a friend, who first discovered her food when he was helping a friend for the booth at the Queen's Night Market. He told her that he had never smelled anything like that before. Medina tried her food and liked it, offering to keep in touch, and if you feel like you're closer to finding a space, let's talk about how we might be able to work together, Preg said. They kept in touch. Medina helped her set up native noodles. When she opened, she became one of the only Singaporean restaurants in the Big Apple, ready to share her culture. I think that it's a little bit tricky with a Singaporean audience because I intentionally didn't do things exactly how our grandmothers cooked it. I'm happy to be one of the first in New York City, and I think it actually helped us get a lot of organic marketing, which I'm thankful for. That was Brandon Amica reading Jeremy Frederick's Native Noodles. You can find that story on our website, dirty-spoon.com. The Dirty Spoon Radio Hour is made possible by our underwriter, The Marketplace Restaurant. Serving Asheville for over 20 years, The Marketplace is Asheville's original farm-to-table restaurant. The Marketplace strives to bring you the best of what our region has to offer, farmed by our neighbors. For more information on our underwriters or to support us yourself by subscribing to our Patreon, visit dirty-spoon.com.
Journalism is important, and unfortunately, it's disappearing from coverage in newspapers and outlets across the country due to budget cuts. Food journalism can act as a mirror to reflect deeper issues happening in a community or shed light on patterns in the world at large. How we think, act, speak, learn, support, and change food and food systems are direct results of proper journalism. In 2021, James Beard nominated journalist Hannah Raskin former food editor and chief critic of Charleston's Post and Courier, decided to launch The Food Section, an independent newsletter with one mission, bring quality food journalism to the South's underserved cities, states, and towns. Her departure from Post and Courier to begin this project came with its own set of risks, with the potential reward, reaching communities with original, inclusive reporting and insights was even greater. John sat down with Hannah to talk about her career, food journalism, and what we can expect from the food section. So I've spent the last eight years at the Post and Career, which is the morning paper uh, here in Charleston. It's the biggest paper in South Carolina. Um, During that time, I served as food editor and the restaurant critic for the paper Um, and really, really liked what I did, um, but thought it would be cool to do it not just for Charleston, but for the South at large. So um, I applied to Substack for a local journalism grant to get that started and received it. So decided to leave the paper in June and am now um, publishing this newsletter, the food section, which is covering you know food and drink culture and news throughout the region. Yeah, and you're you're part one of several people in in the region that have kind of switched over to the Substack format. What is what what's causing the the exodus from the papers what's <laughs> causing the the rise in this independent streak of journalism what's tell me your background in that and why why you chose to get out of out of major paper yeah well i mean it was a really tough decision for me because i love newspapers and i love newsrooms um but when it came down to for me and i can't speak to everybody else who's decided to shift from newspapers to newsletters is I felt like both my reach and resources were pretty limited at the paper. Um, 
you know, one of the problems with being a general interest newspaper is, you know, any money that comes in doesn't just pay for my work. And we have to pay to send the football writer to football games and, you know, the business writers to conferences and everything's kind of split up. Um, so I was hoping that, you know, I could put together a product where kind of I controlled the budget um, in such a way that it would serve readers who wanted to learn about food and not necessarily football. Yeah. And that's got to be nice to have your own independence and choose who you work with and who and you're working for yourself. So that's a, that's got to be a lot of fun and a change of pace, I'm sure. Yeah. I mean, I was pretty siloed at the paper. I didn't really report to anybody. Nobody reported to me. I, right. I mean, we've all worked alone throughout the pandemic, but that was pretty much true even up to that point. Um, so actually, one of the exciting things about working on a project of my own is exactly as you say, I get to choose who I work with. So for the first time, I have a, a an editor that I selected, um, you know, various collaborators, um, which is really fun. Yeah. Tell me about who all you're working with on this. Who Who, who have you brought on board? Well, so my goal ultimately is to build the food section into a platform for food journalists across the South. Um, as of yet, I don't have the revenue to make that happen. I hope that the right. newsletter is successful and I can do that. But for now, um, I'm working with my editor is Steve Fennessy, who was at Atlanta Magazine for a long, long time and is now at the public radio station there. So he's serving in a consulting capacity. Um, so you know, I send him what I write um, when I want to. Um, and then I've got other just sort of informal advisors, um, writers in, in both Carolinas who are kind of looking at things and, and helping me out. You've written all over the place. You've, you were in Seattle for a while, right? And I think you were in Texas. And uh... Yeah, you guys. So my trajectory was after leaving Asheville, where I was the food writer at the Mountain Express for a little while. Um, I was recruited from there by, at the time, I think it was, I don't know if it was Village Voice Media or New Times, but it was one of those big, you know, one, the big alt-weekly company, whatever name they were going by then. Um, so they recruited me to work at the Dallas Observer, which was then one of their holdings. No idea if it mm. still is. Um, and then when an opening, there was an opening for the same job within the company in Seattle. So I went from the Dallas Observer, the Seattle Weekly. Um, and then, as I said, came here to Charleston in 2013. Yeah. And you've, you've, Primarily a function as a food critic for most of your career, right? And you've kind of shifted into the into more of a journalistic role throughout your work? Yeah, I mean, yes, yes and no. I've definitely done criticism from the start, but to me that you know, that is a journalistic endeavor. I kind of yeah. approach reviewing. Um, I think as a journalist approaches any stories. So um I've always done Folks, I've you know I've always because I've been in places and I know I spoke earlier to the lack of resources. Or I've been in places where you know I, I do all of the food coverage. That means you know I owe my readers more than just reviews. So yeah. I've always done the investigative pieces and things like that. Yeah, I'm curious too because um, I mean I've I wrote for Mountain Express for eight years and uh, in their food section and you haven't come out of out of Express as well. Um, one of the things that I constantly is constantly debated and battled in small towns like Asheville is the value of that criticism and the value of a restaurant critic. And I would love to hear your perspective on th and thoughts on when is a town too small for a critic? When is it, you know, when does a town need a critic? Because sometimes it can be a hindrance to small b local businesses getting off the ground. And sometimes it can be a great asset to the, the accountability of what people are serving. 
and the quality right. of what a town is offering. And and I would just love to hear your perspective on on where a critic is necessary, when and why. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I think you're absolutely right that we were having this debate um, in Asheville when I was at the Express. So we're talking about like 05, 06, 07. Um, you know, I think what necessitated a critic at that time, and it's really interesting the way you frame the question. I never thought about like what exactly are the criteria for like this town is ready for a critic in terms of like how many restaurants, how many people, all that. You know, I would say by the time a town or city is getting uh, national recognition for their food or people are potentially traveling there to to eat food, uh, I think a critic is probably warranted. And I think that's really where we were with Asheville at the time, right? Like there were, um, you know, obviously some places have been around forever, like Marketplace or whatever, but there were there were places I feel like that were like, look, like, you know, I was at express when the Admiral opened. Right. And that was like, right. it was starting to, you know, it was starting to be a, a new level of food, um, which was happening everywhere. That was sort of, you know, there was a national wave of interest and in really inventive and imaginative food, but, but yeah, if you're going to, uh, you know, cater to a national audience, I, I think you need someone holding you to those standards. Yeah. Totally. I remember I had to judge a food truck competition a number of years ago and was asked to write about it for Express. And I I wrote about the highlights and then I wrote about the low points and was pretty critical of the low points, but I didn't name a single truck in, yeah. the, in the low point section. And people still were up in arms about like, how dare you be critical of us? And I was like, look, you guys are taking money for for, from people and giving them food. And right. like, if your product is not up to par, they need to know about it before they hand you money. Right. Absolutely. I mean, I think there is this misconception that, you know, as a restaurant reviewer that you're supposed to represent the restaurants. That's not true. You know, you as a critic are you know, your obligations to your readers. And as you say, it, where they spend their money, especially as expensive as food is these days, is really important. Yeah. And I've always really respected that about your writing, too, that you always seem to take the side of the reader primarily. And I do, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And that's not to say, like, I mean, obviously, I, I want every good person to succeed. Like, you know, it's it, there is no another misconception, I think, is that critics take joy in panning a restaurant. And that's certainly not true either. Like, we're all better off when all of the food is better. Um yeah. So it's, it, 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 yeah. So it, it's not that I'm, you know, it's not like I'm rooting against restaurants. I'm rooting right. for all of them. But yeah. 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 I feel like, uh, yeah. It, I mean, and it is fun to write a negative review sometimes when you, when you really get that one that you're like, Ooh, I can knock this one out of the park. But <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't take a ton of joy in negative reviews. I mean, for one thing, if you're going to be in a position to write a review, you've had to go to the place two, three, four, maybe five times. So, right. you know, that's not fun when the food is terrible. Like, yeah, so that, that part isn't any good at all. You're in equal um, misery at that point. <laughs> yeah. Right. And I mean, you know, like it, it, you're, what you're writing is going to have consequences. It's really important. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's a serious job. Yeah. Yeah. Let's, I'd love to talk too about some of your, um, some of the other work that you've done and the pieces that you've done while you were at, especially while you were at Post and Courier. And I remember you did, um, you, you did a piece about, uh, African Americans in the, in the region the first time they got to go into white owned restaurants. Yeah. 
and their memories of that. And that, that piece has always really stood out to me. Thank you. That was um, a, a piece I'm really proud of. It was a really difficult piece to get together, not surprisingly. I mean, you know, I worked with the public library here to try and get word out about wanting to interview folks. You know, we put up flyers in every church and community center, and I spent time just sitting with a microphone in some, you know, senior citizens uh, uh, centers as well. Um but it was, it was really important to me to think about the nuances of the story of restaurant integration, which was not a single moment. Like, I think everyone is so aware of, you know, the sit-ins at the lunch counters. And I think among white eaters and, and you know, just white Southerners, there's a sense that, well, you know, it was segregated and then it was integrated. But yeah. that's not how it went. It went that way legally. It didn't go that way culturally. Uh, and one of the one of the stumbling blocks for me is when I ask people the question again. The question I was asking Black residents to respond to is, "When did you first eat in a white restaurant?" Some cases, the answer was, "I haven't." Wow. I mean, it, yeah. It, so it's really important to think about. You know, just because something is legal doesn't mean that people feel comfortable. I mean, a, a law is not the same as hospitality. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's there's famous pictures of, you know, restaurant owners and managers chasing black people out of their restaurants after desegregation, you know? Right. Right. Absolutely. But there was also evidence that a lot of restaurant owners didn't battle um, integration because they knew no no person of color or no no black people were going to come to their restaurant. And that, that yeah. to me was really surprising that I thought it was going to be if I looked in the historical record that more restaurateurs would have been really you know hung up on preserving segregation. But they knew that it would continue just informally. And so they didn't have to worry about it. Yeah. I mean, it's like we we just discovered here in, in Asheville that one of our country clubs out here still had rules on the books banning black people from being members. Yeah. And it, they hadn't had to address it because no one had tried to become a member. <laughs> exactly. Since right. those laws were put in the books. Yep. Yep. I'm sure that's true all over the South. Yeah. It's, it's astounding. And it's especially astounding in a place as diverse as... Charleston is because that is a very diverse society and, and culture and yep. very integrated culture. Yep. Well, I would I would stop at saying a very integrated culture, but yes, it's a very. Um, I mean, at the time, um, it, it's it, the peninsula, the you know, downtown Charleston, has for much of its history been majority black. Yeah. And it's you know it's interesting the the first kind of integrate restaurant integration story I heard or excuse me restaurant segregation story that got me interested in the whole phenomenon was speaking to a funeral director here he's since passed but remembering the restaurant he wanted to go to the restaurant he wanted to go to most was Hardee's and this this was a theme that kept popping up is a lot of the fast hmm. food restaurants because you know I think they ran commercials or they had a national presence you know whereas. Probably if y'all, you know, if you don't know white people, you may not know what's happening in a white restaurant, let alone have any interest in going there. Right. But, you know, fast food restaurants have a national presence um, and they have corollaries up north where maybe you could have visited them there or your family's visiting them there. So there's a lot of that was the place in a lot of cases that folks wanted to go into. And so the Hardee's here opened um, prior to integration and so I remember this funeral director telling me they'd get together and get their lightest skin cousin to go and they'd give him the money for the burgers. And wow. he was able to, to pass. 
Yeah. And so that, that, that's what started me down that road. Like, it's really interesting. Yeah. I never think about the, the, the chain restaurants, like the, the major, the big restaurants being part of that segregation, but they really were. They really were. I mean, that's just how you function. It was, you know, in many cases, municipal or state law. Um, but yeah, I mean, I just think, and I, I think chains are so important. I'm actually super psyched. I'm going next week to this big conference of fast casual executives. Um, oh, wow. right. And I think, I mean, when we talk about how Americans eat, um, you know, today or decades ago, so much of that is determined by chain restaurants yeah. and it may not be like the hip thing and they may not serve the best food, but if we're really talking about, food and drink culture in this country, a lot of times we're talking about chains. Yeah, because they normalize the the types of foods that we eat. Absolutely. To, yeah, down to like, you know, now we're seeing the Impossible Burger be normalized because it's like vegan food being normalized because it's finally in chain restaurants. Yeah, and, that's a great point. Because what I was going to say is, I mean, only they have like the buying power to influence change. That, yeah. That's the interesting thing. So... Yeah, yeah, if you, if really you don't matters. believe that, just look at pumpkin spice. You know, it's exactly. literally in everything now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's. I mean, that's that'll be fascinating. I've yeah, I have an endless fascination with with fast food and chain restaurants because of the way that they function, the way that they operate, the way that they move things, and the way that they treat flavor as this hierarchical goal and the mm-hmm. backwards way they go about achieving it. <laughs> <laughs> right, 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 right. But then some things, you know, when you bring in systems, it turns out things like hospitality, a system can really help. Like I, yeah. I did this, you know, I, I, I ate it, I reviewed or I ranked the top chain restaurants a couple of years ago. It was fun. So I ate in all these chain restaurants. And in almost every case, the service surpassed what I receive in an independent restaurant. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Yeah. It, yeah. I was, I was out with a, a prominent restaurant owner in Asheville a while back and we went to a uh he was craving red lobster so we snuck yeah. into this red lobster and like hoodies you know and just like try not to be seen and th- we immediately yeah. run into a local alcohol rep you know uh, yeah. <laughs> but we, yeah. we, we were all just sitting there at the bar looking around and watching everything move watching the system move and we were like yeah. man they have this down to a t and it was to a T. It's so funny. When I thought about like the best service I saw, I was actually thinking of Red Lobster. Like, That's so I mean, funny. props to Darden or whatever. I mean, they really have it down in terms of service. It's amazing. Yeah. And, and we were just like, let's see how many times they turn that one table over while we're yeah. sitting here. And that yeah. table, like we were there for probably a couple hours and that table turned over twice in those two right. hours. And I was like, that's incredible. Yeah, and I bet those it. people never felt rushed. I bet they love their experiences. You know, it's, yeah. it's really impressive. Yeah, no, I think I think that that if if a lot of local entrepreneurs could learn from some of those systems, it would be greatly behoove yeah, local I mean, restaurants. A basket of cheddar biscuits can go a long way. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> and uh, I guess let's also talk about your. Um, you did a piece a while back that ruffled a few feathers. Well, you've done a few of those over the years. Yeah, I, guess but, I don't even know which one you're going to mention. <laughs> but the the food festivals piece. Yeah. Right. Right. So I first covered food festivals in depth. I obviously had covered Charleston wine and food here on an annual basis um, since I got here. Just a a big, big, big deal. Um, And certainly the festival was instrumental in establishing Charleston as a food destination. So, you know, I don't want to 
undercut its significance. Um, and yeah, I mean, so covering that, I mean, especially in the early years I was here, I mean, that's what brought all of these chefs and, you know, really important food figures to town. So I covered it in that regard. Um, and along the way, you know, I was kind of poking at this and that and, it, you know, got more and more interested in speaking of systems. I mean, just the way these festivals function um, in terms of who, you know, how much, it, it's all, you know, as I said, I approach my job like any journalist, which means I follow the money. So the question is, you know, how much money is coming in? Who is it going to and how is it being used? And yeah. so the first big piece I did was actually published in the LA Times, um, looking at just that question. And it's a surprise to absolutely nobody in the food industry, but came as a shock to many people who aren't that, you know, these are all being built on the backs of the people who can least afford it. Often, you know, members of marginalized and disadvantaged communities, women and people yeah. of color who are trying to make their way in the industry and think, you know, exposure is going to help them. And so they give of their time, of their labor, and in most cases, by the ingredients that they're serving. Right. Yeah. It's, yeah. you know, I feel like we saw the dissolving of the, the Asheville Food and Wine Festival here. And a yeah. lot of that was caused by a lot of local restaurants pulling out of it and not participating. And those same people, even though they insisted that they were not replacing the food and Nashville Food and Wine Festival, started their own festival, you know, <laughs> with right. Chow Chow. And it was just yeah. this this amazing movement to watch. And like I I literally went to Chow Chow, and this was shortly before your article came out. And I literally went there to talk, uh, to do a little audio documentary on why we don't need food festivals anymore. Right. And through the course of watching them do that one and a little bit of going to Terra Vida, I started realizing like, oh, there's different schools of these festivals. Right. And there's different right. classes of these festivals, ones that are organized by restaurant people for restaurant people and ones that are organized by event companies for the purpose of making money. Right. Now, do you, I'll ask you, do you think this revised version of Chow Chow that's happening this year, is it any, is there any improvement? I think that there's a lot of, of looking at what people in the industry need and what they want and mm -hmm. helping that. I think of course there's always room for improvement because it is still event companies putting these things on. Right. Um, right. These things aren't cheap. I mean, no. And yeah, yeah. to me, it's one of those things where you start, you know, I think there's there's definitely people that are in it for the money in any event group. But I think there are a lot of people that are that are building more towards something that's more equitable and and, and well I, I'm su I'm super curious. I'm actually I'm gonna be in Asheville this weekend and so my visit coincides with the final event. So I'm going on Saturday. Um oh, just nice. to I'll be hosting out, that yeah. one. <laughs> What's that? I'll be hosting that one. I will see you there. Yeah. Awesome. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm just so interested in, in how these things evolve. It's, you know, as you mentioned, um, my story in the LA Times came out around the time that, that Chow Chow was going on that in that year. And it, this um, the story was sponsored in part by Southern Foodways Alliance. So I kind of delivered a talk at their symposium. Um, and I remember Katie Button stood up as soon as I finished speaking. And, you know, she, she was concerned. I mean, she was really, she was defending what had happened. Um, but it's been interesting to see the changes that have happened since. Um, like I said, I haven't seen them on the ground yet. But, you know, I talked to Katie for a story I just did for Resi about the evolution of food festivals. Um, yeah. 
and which was interesting. And that story was actually focused on the new the Bay Haven Festival that's going to go down in Charlotte at the end of October, which yeah. is the Black Food Festival. And when I talked to Sabrina Collier, who's the organizer of it, I thought it was really interesting that she took as her model, not these wine and food festivals that are so exploitative, but the Greek festival that she remembered hmm. as a kid. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, that's the perfect food festival. Totally. Like, we all have memories of Greek festivals. I know, I yeah. assume the one in Asheville is still going on. Oh, it's definitely um, going on. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, and it, it, what's interesting is like what brings that, what makes that festival work, I think. And now I actually, I got a chance to, to interview the, the, the woman at the Memphis festival, which had inspired Sabrina initially. Um, and, and so actually I would love to write more about Greek food festivals in the South because they are a thing oh, totally. uh, for, for sure. Um, but what makes them work is like the people behind them. And that's typically the Greek Orthodox church are just so eager to share their faith and to share their community. Yeah. And that makes all the difference. It's not about making money. Like, I don't know. They do make money, I think, because people love baklava, but like right. that, it makes such a difference. So. Yeah. No, that's that's a great point. I feel like all those like regional food gatherings are greater examples of how those things can work and support a community instead of leeching from it. Right, but exactly. I think it's going to be interesting to see the evolution of the food festival because I think a lot of people are also just sick of going to booze fests and eating phyllo cups with Tomato Nobody pie wants bites. Nobody wants bites. Yeah. You know, I mean, that's the other thing that's always great. The Greek festival, like you get a whole year or whatever, you know, it's like no one yeah. wants the bites. No, yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah, I feel like uh, you could write for years. You could de- dedicate an entire career to just writing about food festivals at this point. And, and oh my gosh, yeah. yeah. But, I feel like I kind of am at this point, but also <laughs> I'm, I'm in it. <laughs> So how do people get a hold of the food section? Um, how do they subscribe? What are you guys going to be covering? What's it going to, what's it going to look like? So at this point, I'm covering the entire South, which is basically anywhere you can order sweet tea and not have someone look at you funny. So it's like <laughs> 10 states, uh, parts of some states and not so much of others. Like I get a little bit of Northern Florida, right? But uh, <laughs> not the rest of it. Um, and covering um, anything that really influences how people eat and drink. Um, so, you know, we'll have restaurant reviews, investigative pieces, features, all of that. But it's absolutely evolving. It is one week old at this point. Um, so, <laughs> I, I, you know, what's most important to me, and I think we alluded to this earlier, is I really try and serve my readers. Um, and I'm just getting to know my readers at this point. So I really would love to hear from folks about what they want covered. My sense in starting this publication is there are a lot of people living in a lot of places in the South where they don't have a local food journalist, where a lot of important stories aren't getting told. Um so I'm here to help with that. And I'd love to hear from people. Um, and they don't, it doesn't have to be a tip. They don't have to be a source. I mean, just people have curiosities or suggestions, um, ideas. I'm open to everything. Um, and I'm really quick to email back. I always respond. So best way to find me in the food section. Um, the food section is online at thefoodsection.substack.com. Alternately, if you find me anywhere on social media, that will take you there. Um, when I say anywhere on social media, I'm not on Facebook, but I will happily respond to messages on Twitter and Instagram pretty quickly, too. Great. Awesome. Well, I look forward to reading it. And thanks for taking the time to talk to us. Yeah. Thank you so much. That was John talking with Hannah Raskin, founder of The Food Section.
You can learn more about the food section and subscribe to the newsletter by visiting thefoodsection.substack.com.
walking out of your hotel room and past a garden, full and lush with ripe produce and overflowing herbs, on your way to the front desk. It's not a dream. It's becoming a practice more common in hotels and independent lodges around the world, and not just for luxury resorts. With an eye on sustainability and eating in season, hotels are figuring out how to shorten the supply chain to within steps from their doors, in light of a travel trend that is most likely not going away. Freelance journalist and Oklahoma-based writer Christy Eaton brings us down to the dirt and takes a closer look at what some of these destinations are doing to introduce guests to the next evolution of farm-to-table. In St. Lucia, one resort has a living history museum of bananas in an effort to grow all the banana varieties in the Caribbean. In Kenya, guests staying at a luxury safari lodge can pick their own ingredients from the local farm for their own salads, adding fresh flavor to an already indulgent experience. It's the latest and ultimate garden-to-fork experience, hotels and resorts growing their own produce, herbs and other items on the grounds for use in their restaurants and dishes prepared for guests. The East Winds Resort in St. Lucia is attempting to preserve banana varieties that are becoming increasingly rare. The reason? Some varieties of bananas are difficult to grow or difficult to transport, and so they only have a small local market. Bananas ranging in color from yellow to red and green can now be enjoyed by guests at the resort's flamboyant restaurant. There are even some varieties that can be used as an alternative to potato, and the resort produces simple snack chips from them. We're growing the bananas using traditional methods, and ultimately we want to open up the museum as a resource for local schools so they can enthuse school children about banana growing and have a new enthusiastic generation ready to take over from the older farmers, said Judith Milne, managing director of East Winds. At the Angama Mara, the award-winning luxury safari lodge overlooking the iconic Maasai Mara in Kenya, the Shamba, Swahili for vegetable garden, opened in 2018. The Shamba is built with environmentally friendly construction methods and is divided into five zones for different produce. Under romantic towering shade trees, the lodge offers private Shamba to table lunches in the garden. Guests can pick their own ingredients, which are then washed and readied for a possible salad. Meanwhile, in Tibet, Sangtsam Hotels, Resorts and Tours has organic farms on their resort properties in Benzalan, Bom, Sishong, and Tachang. These farms grow seasonal tomatoes, peppers, cabbage, and fruits, which allows Sangtsam to offer fresh farm-to-table meals, including vegetarian and organic dishes. Chef Wang Dui from Shangri-La has curated interactive cooking experiences for Sangtsam's guests. We have cooking classes with local chefs where guests can make traditional Tibetan dishes like butter tea and yak cheese dishes, he said. Local chefs can also accompany guests to the nearby market and organic farm where guests can pick fresh produce for that day's meal. Tibet's high altitude has shaped not only a lifestyle and culture, but also the food and drink of the region. The four basic staples of the Tibetan diet are the famous tsampa, roasted barley flour, butter tea, high-protein meats and noodles, foods that are organic and locally sourced. Back in the Caribbean, also in St. Lucia, sister resorts Jade Mountain and Anse Chastane share a lush 600-acre property that's home to the Emerald Estate Regenerative Farm, which grows and harvests a large variety of produce while being careful not to compete with local farmers. 
Vanilla, cacao, honey, mango, and asparagus are just a few of the fresh ingredients grown on site and used in the resort's restaurants and culinary programs. They recently debuted an herbal medicine garden that pays homage to the island's indigenous roots and wellness traditions. Guests can tour the garden with the resort's horticulture manager, who guides them through an educational lesson on the significance of each herb and plant and their various health benefits. The garden features a living teepee made of moringa trees. Moringa is one of the world's greatest superfoods and a source of chlorophyll and iron. Additional herbs in their medicine garden include ginger, turmeric, basil, panadol plant, chandon beni, fennel, and more. At Kimpton Angler's Hotel South Beach in Miami, executive chef Craig Tooker is putting the finishing touches on its new Breezeway Herb Garden, set to be completed by the end of September. According to Chef Tooker, the herbs will be part of the kitchen's everyday menus and specialty menus, with a variety of herbs planted allowing us to incorporate them into all of the menus and dishes we create. Curated with the help of local horticultural experts and driven by Tooker's focus on incorporating fresh, local, seasonal, and sustainable ingredients, the garden will feature such herbs and greens as lemongrass, thyme, mint, basil, opal basil, oregano, tarragon, dill, cilantro, flat-leaf parsley, chives, serrano peppers, habanero peppers, and a key lime tree. Kimpton Angler's Breezeway Herb Garden will be overseen by Chef Tooker with the help of a local landscaper to ensure the proper growth of herbs that will be featured in dishes planned for the hotel's new Seawell Fish and Oyster Restaurant and minnow bar menus set to roll out over the coming weeks. The hotel is also looking to make the garden an interactive experience for guests, including signage in place throughout for them to learn about each of the herbs grown and how they are used. Guests will be able to stroll the garden and pick their own herbs, whether for a cocktail or chosen dish. This signals a new chapter in hotel stays and a shift in values for guests. The old idea of elevating a dish is being brought back down to earth, into the very dirt itself, and may mark the beginning of resort rooftop gardens and on-site farms for many more properties to come. That was Claire Winkler reading Christy Eaton's Garden to Fork. You can find that story on our website, dirty-spoon.com. The Dirty Spoon Radio Hour is made possible by our underwriter, The Marketplace Restaurant. Serving Asheville for over 20 years, The Marketplace is Asheville's original farm-to-table restaurant. The Marketplace strives to bring you the best of what our region has to offer, farmed by our neighbors. For more information on our underwriters or to support us yourself by subscribing to our Patreon, visit dirty-spoon.com. Too late for
of an hour Trying to make sense of a past To show us how This chance Imagining the worlds that could be Shaping a mosaic of fate For all sentient beings Visions Cycles of growth and decay Cascading chains of events With no one to praise or blame Suffering and pain We are patiently itching away Toward unreachable utopias Visions Enslaved by the forces of nature Elevated by mindless replicators Challenge to steer our collective destiny Visions Look at the magic of reality While accepting with honesty That we can't know for sure what's next No, we can't know for sure what's next But that we're in the Dirty Spoon Radio Hour is a production of Dirty Spoon Media, copyright 2021. All the text from our stories is available on our website, dirty-spoon.com. There you can also catch up on past episodes, as well as subscribe to the show and help us keep going through our Patreon. The incredible artwork on that site is by Corinne Pease, Katrin Doza, Ashley Igamides, Kelly Minear, Garnett Fisher, Paul Choi, Marianne Papineau, and Alex Knighton. Music in this episode by Circuit de Yu, Good Morning, Bad Bad Hats, Lunar Vacation, Gustav, Jose Gonzalez. I'm your host, Catherine Campbell, coming to you solo today. I'm the Dirty Spoon Radio Hours editor at large, and I source our stories and handle our website and marketing. My co-host, Jonathan Ammons, is our editor-in-chief, handles the music selection, production, recording, audio editing, and wrote and recorded the original music in this episode. Tune in next month for more stories, conversations, and music from the people who shape what we consume right here on the Dirty Spoon Radio Hour from WPVMLP 103.7 on the dial.